And today we're going to be looking in Daniel 9. If you want to turn to Daniel 9, and my Bible, it's page 1068. <laughs> Ricky's Bible, it's on 864. So Rach has got it online. That's a we're going to look at Daniel 9. And before we go in, let's just take a little bit of a backward step. What the book of Daniel is trying to show us, first and foremost, is what we should have well grasped by now, is that what do, how do you respond, how do you behave when, for whatever reason, you are a minority or feel like a minority in a culture that is constantly challenging the way you think that you should live? How do you respond? How do you deal with all of that? And if you identify, if that's the right word, as being a Christian or someone that follows the teachings of Jesus, um, if you're, then I can only imagine that you feel like a minority in our culture. Um, it feels that way at times. Although we have thousands upon thousands, even millions of other people across the world that profess to follow in Jesus Christ, at times it can feel like a minority. So Daniel is a great book for us to be able to begin to understand what life is like and how we should respond. And the main thing to learn from what we're learning here is that the natural response to these situations of feeling alone in a bigger culture is not to run away and go and build a monastery and hide in it and not see the outside world. But let us just consider the storyline a little bit. Because one thing that I think I took away from last week's message is that how this may come as a surprise to some people, maybe not for most, um, but the Bible is not written chronologically. You can't start at Genesis, read all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, um, and say, so get to Micah and uh, have read the whole Bible chronologically. Okay, it's all kind of in different places. And so it gets very difficult, unless you're a little bit of a Bible geek, um, to be able to figure out where are we? And this is a question that frustrated the life out of me for a long time. And so I began to try my best to get to grips with the historical order of things so I needed to be able to go I would read a scripture like I'd read this in Daniel and I go okay that's great but where am I where am I in terms of history because for me to understand this I need to understand where I am so let me just give you a quick rundown of where we are and what we're going to read is Daniel's prayer because up until now and you'll find with certainly historical um uh, uh, Hebrew writings, they were never really delved into a character. If you read Greek writing, uh, Greek writing will really give you detail. And that's the interesting thing about the Daniel and Goliath stories because you get a description of what Goliath was like. Now, in no other Hebrew writings do you get those sorts of descriptions. If you read the Iliad, lots of the descriptive language that's used to describe Goliath is directly not directly out of the Iliad, but has the same language. And so uh, the Greeks were just over the road from um, the Hebrews, I suppose, um, the Israelites in many ways. And so the lots of people will say that that was written specifically in a different way to, to kind of 
uh, appeal to other cultures that they could read their writings and understand them because they wrote it in a Greek way in Hebrew. Um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is that we don't ever know much about Daniel other than his actions. We know about Daniel from the way he acted and responded, but his character, him, what he looked like, um, what he felt about certain things, we don't know a huge amount about. However, I believe through reading Daniel's prayer, we learn something about Daniel that I think is really important for us to learn. And the prayer is one of the most beautiful prayers, um, a beautiful piece of scripture. Um, that after I read, it, um, I read it through yesterday, and you sit there and it kind of, you just have to sit and dwell on it a little bit. So, let me give you a storyline. God redeems the Israelites from Egypt. We all know about that, yeah. So Moses, Israelites, they get free. God leads them out. God then takes them to Mount Sinai, and at Sinai there is a covenant, and that's an agreement between the people of the chosen people of God, the Israelites, and God. And God says that through these people, I am going to bless all peoples on the earth. And a covenant agreement is to make them a priest to all other nations. So uh, through them, the world will find a way to God. And so this covenant is drawn up. This is where we get the Ten Commandments, but they're only like the headline ten. They're not even called the Ten Commandments. We call it the Ten Commandments. Um, so there's these ten kind of covenant agreement rules. And following them, there's like over 600 more. Um, there's a lot, it's really, really detailed. And then they go into the Promised Land with Joshua. Okay, out of Egypt, Mount Sinai, 40 years in the wilderness, into the Promised Land. About 400 years have gone by since that event. And all the stories pre the exile, pre the, the Israelites being led to, into captivity again, it's about 400 years of disobedience and evil really being unleashed and an injustice from the Israelite people. And so Israelites have broken their covenant agreement with God for 400 years. And they go into captivity under the Babylonians. And this is where Daniel finds himself. So we can see from Scripture that Daniel is a good guy. You know, there's not many people in the Bible that are good guys. But Daniel's a good guy. He doesn't do, I can't find much wrong that he does. He's honest. He always tries to do the right thing. But he's in captivity. Why is Daniel in captivity? Daniel is in captivity because of the disobedience of 400 years of people that have gone before him. And so we have this really clean guy, this guy who his whole life, He's just been doing his best to follow God. And I want to maybe resonate with a few people here. Maybe you've spent your whole life trying to do the right thing. Maybe you've spent a long time trying to do the right thing. You're, you're, you're reading your Bible. You're sitting down doing scripture. And for no fault of your own, for nothing that you have done, you find yourself just in this mess of situation. In this place where you would, if you're bored, it all day, you go, 
do I, do I, do I deserve to be here? Well, Daniel didn't deserve to be there on his own actions. He was there because of the disobedience of his forefathers and everyone before him. And how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? How do you feel when you feel like you're doing everything right, but you're still in this mess? You, you feel like you're in this land of captivity, that you're in, you're, in the enemy, the, you're in the enemy's castle, so to speak. And what Daniel 9 is going to show us is a little bit of a glimpse of how Daniel saw it. Because what will tend to happen to us, and what happens to most people, is that you know, if you think you're right, I'm doing all the right things, I'm, as, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, it's you lot. It's your sin, it's the sin of all you people around me. And what happens to most people is you elevate your own level of righteousness, and you think that I'm the one who's correct here, and I'm suffering because of the sin in all these other people's lives. And so you actually you begin to call out on other people. And you begin to blame them, point the finger at them, and say, it's because of you, it's because of this, it's because of that. How easy would it have been for Daniel to be so bitter about the people that went before him, about the people in his town, how easy would it have been to become bitter to all these people? And how easy is it for you to become bitter in your life when you feel constantly let down by everybody around you? Because you think you're doing it right and it's everybody else. And what you kind of get is this, a little bit of a righteous martyr mentality. I'm suffering because of the sin of others. Because I'm doing it right. And it's very easy. And we see it in churches, we see it in the established church, that they call out, elevate themselves, look down on everybody else, and say, we're in this mess because of you, sinner. And we can see this sort of thing happen in our own lives. My view is that Daniel adopted the opposite of this. Daniel, who ends in captivity, serving a foreign king, he's a good guy, he adopted a totally different mentality. And we're going to learn from his prayer what he did. So, we're going to read Daniel 9. I had two points, but I think I might only make one now. And we might talk a bit more next week. Let's read from Daniel 9, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. That's just in case you're all wondering. He's a Mede by descent, just in case you didn't know. And it obviously clears it all up now. Who was made a ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, that's why we believe that Daniel wrote this. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. 
Let's stop there. So, a couple of things that we know. Because he, know, because he gives us the time. You know, thank you, Daniel, for writing the time in the first year of Darius. We can work out that by this point. Um, Daniel's been in exile for 50 years. Thereabouts, 50 years. And so Daniel's been in exile this whole time, and he's got to be thinking to himself, how long is this going to last? I've been here for 50 years. I'm an old man now. I came in as a young man. Now I'm an old man. 50 years. Surely it's going to end soon. So what did Daniel do? And I don't know if anyone's picked this up from the writing, but it's really clear what Daniel did. Daniel decided there must be something in the Word of God about all of this. There must be something. And so Daniel starts to read the Bible. And Daniel goes to where? The prophet Jeremiah's writings. And we can read what I believe Daniel read. If you turn with me to Jeremiah 25, verse 8, which is on page 952. <laughs> that's, an, that's an in joke, sorry. Because what has happened is that all of a sudden Daniel has become motivated. Daniel's read something in the prophet Jeremiah. Now all of a sudden Daniel's motivated. Daniel's got some hope. He starts praying. He starts fasting. Daniel's motivated all of a sudden by some level of hope, by something that he's read in Scripture. Jeremiah 25 verse 8 says this, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them, and make them an object of horror and scorn, and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and of gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So this is what I'm thinking. Daniel's clearly told us that he read from the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, before all of this, uh, prophesied that this would happen, that Nebuchadnezzar would take over Jerusalem, that they would fall, and they would have to serve Babylon for 70 years. He's already been there 50. And all of a sudden he's thinking, I've only got 20 more years to go. Now it's time to start praying. He's rekindled his hope. He realises that where he is, is temporary. The end is near. And it fostered hope in him. And do you not think it's just amazing to consider these words that we're reading here in Jeremiah, Daniel had a copy of somehow. And Daniel was reading out of the prophet Jeremiah. I, I, I Maybe you don't, but I personally think that's fantastic. Because it said, according to the word, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. That lines up perfectly with what's written in Jeremiah. Okay. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. I've just spent a long time talking about, hey, Daniel is the good guy in all of this. We have no reason to believe that Daniel's not a good guy. 
But Daniel decides that the right thing to do, the right response to the hope that he has just rekindled is to pray and to confess. Let me just read all of this prayer in one go. Then I'm going to pull out one real specific point that I want to make. And just take this prayer in. Okay, it's a, it's a beautiful prayer. These are the words of Daniel. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who, have love, who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem, just as it is written in the law of Moses. All of this disaster has come on us, yet you have not sought Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. That's a beautiful portion of scripture and probably the most beautiful confession that 
you could read in the Bible. It's right from Daniel's heart. And I think from this, we can learn something about him. You may have not have picked it up, but one word was repeated in there four times, and that was righteous. The Hebrew for righteous is zedek. It's a word that we find difficult to translate. And unless you were a skateboarder in the 70s and the 80s, you probably haven't said righteous in any normal conversation um, since. And righteous is, like a, is a Bible word that we think we know what it means, but I'm going to suggest that we're going to try and learn something slightly this morning. Righteous, we've heard it spoken many times before, is about being in right standing. There's something really important about what Daniel said. And Daniel never said, they sinned. He said, we sinned. We sinned. Good guy, Daniel. We. He included himself, rather than pointing the finger at the 400 years worth of ancestry and disobedience that he could have done. Uh, we say right standing. Righteousness is right standing. But as, and also another way of thinking about it is, let, let's think, okay, he says four times, uh, verse 7, verse 14, verse 18, and I can't remember the last verse. Um, but he talks about the Lord's righteousness. He says that the Lord is righteous. He acted this way because he was righteous. And he brought desolation on us because he was righteous. Righteousness basically means, the easiest way I can kind of sum it up, is, first of all, it can't be done alone, okay? You can't be righteous alone. Because to be right standing implies there has to be a relationship, okay? There has to be two people involved, so you can't be righteous alone. God can't be righteous alone. You can't be righteous by yourself, okay? You can only be righteous with something or someone else and what it makes it the easiest english translation is to do the to do right by or to do let's say um that person's done the right thing by me that means that you've acted accordingly and correctly the right way that we would expect you to act in that relationship say that would be the that's tzedek in hebrew that's what it means so like as a father to a child if you nurture them, love them, behave in all the appropriate ways for a father to raise their child, you would say that that's tzedek, that's righteousness, that is doing the right thing by them. You are in right standing in your relationship, demonstrated through your actions. Does that make sense? So, it has to involve other people. So let's have a look. Verse 7, very quickly. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. If you think what Daniel is trying to say here is that, God, you have done right by us. Lord, you're righteous. You've done right by us, God. You, did the, you rescued us out of Egypt. You made a covenant with us. You did the right thing by us, God. But, but us, we are covered in shame. You know, what, what have we done right? Have we done right by God? Are we righteous? 
And Daniel's saying here, Lord, you are righteous. You led us by the hand out of Egypt. You saved us and restored us and made a covenant with us. Lord, you did right by us. Verse 14, it says, Lord, the Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. So now in the same breath, Daniel is also saying that the disaster that has come upon these people is, be, is because God is righteous, because God has done right by them in their relationship. And this is where we begin to struggle a little bit. What God bringing disaster on these people, is him doing right by them? And this is where we get all different sorts of theology that says God purposely hurts people and God purposely puts people in difficult situations and it's not something that I ascribe to personally. It's only my interpretation of things. That's not how I believe God works. However, we see here that Daniel recognises that God did right by Jerusalem when, he, when they were punished. This is God as a judge here. Let's see, think of it in another way. If God is a judge, if there is a person who has been given a, sec given a second chance, say already, then continually broken the law, continually reaped evil, continually disobeyed, continually released raw and destruction and injustice on the world, because that's what the people of Israel did. That's what Jerusalem did. It perpetuated significant amounts of injustice on people. If the judge said, you know what, it's totally fine, you just guys crack on and have a great time, would we think that that's the right, would, has the judge done the right thing there? Or is to do right in that situation to say, there is a consequence to your sin and your action. The evil that you've unleashed on the world has a consequence. God is a judge. There is a consequence to our evil that we've unleashed on the world. We can't get away from that. And you would have to agree with me that if a judge allowed a criminal to walk free with no consequence, you would say he's not done the right thing. He's not being righteous. He's not being aesthetic. He's not done the right thing. But if he punishes that criminal, you would say the judge has done the right thing. And this is what Daniel is saying. God, you've done the right thing. There's a consequence to the fact that we broke our agreement with you. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 18. Give our ear, give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. God is now being implored by Daniel to rescue them. Why? Because he knows that God is always righteous. So what that means is that no matter the situation, 
And no matter the circumstance, Daniel knows that God will always do the right thing. And that because God is righteous, he doesn't bring judgment and condemnation without bringing forgiveness and restoration. And because of the righteousness of God, God always has a plan to bring him back. Because Daniel knows that God is merciful. And what does a merciful father do? Shows compassion. Shows forgiveness. I can only sum it up a little bit like this. God is like this. In my mind. I have two boys at home. Who occasionally like to attack one another like cavemen. And they get punished. Would I be doing the right thing by my kids to allow them to continue to do that without intervening and say, no, I'm sorry, son, but there's a, there's a consequence to your action? You would say, yeah, that's the right thing to do. That's Zedek. Okay. But you also understand that as a father, what I'm trying to do in separating them, I'm also finding a way to restore them. That's what a father's trying to do. And with these two boys, they act like cavemen at times. What I'm trying to do is I separate them. I go, look boys, you can't act this way towards one another. There'll be a consequence to this bad behaviour. But as a merciful father... You also understand, as a merciful, righteous father, you understand that the right thing to do by those boys is to make sure that they understand that there's restoration here. We're separated because we've got to stop the, we've got to stop the cycle of evil. And we, we bring restoration. We see... An understanding of righteousness by Daniel. So much so that it just is in overwhelming humility in his character. That he doesn't point the finger at other people because that's not righteous. That's not doing the right thing. He gathers it all up and he says, you know what? We've sinned everyone. Lord, because you're righteous, because God, we know that you always do the right thing. Have mercy on us, God, because we know that you will do right by us. And having that slightly different understanding of righteousness, Paul, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, page 1538, in my Bible anyway, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. Paul, who has done all these amazing ministries, all these amazing outreach works, probably the most well-known follower of Jesus Christ, back then and today, writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, there's a saying that will stand you in good stead. And Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 He says, here is a trustworthy saying. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst. We see in Paul something that we see in Daniel. And that is not a desire to constantly call out the sin of other people. But recognise in themselves that I am as sinful as the next person. And I'll finish by kind of summarising what I wanted to say. It goes on from there, right? And Daniel then has an answer to his prayer. And the answer to his prayer is that, Daniel, you ain't going to be, 70 years isn't going to be it. Because the exile to Babylon alone is not going to be enough to rescue mankind. It's going to need more than that. It's going to need more. And that's when everyone jumps in with trying to figure out timelines of the, uh, of the apocalypse and the, the next coming. I'm not interested in all that personally um, because it doesn't help me right in this moment today. One thing that I do know is that there is nothing that other than the cross that demonstrates a righteousness that made a way for all mankind of all time to be able to come into right relationship with God. It made us righteous through Jesus Christ because in my own strength I'm never going to be able to constantly do the right thing by God because just like Paul just like Daniel we have sinned and I am the worst but through Jesus Christ there is a way because Jesus Christ lived in a time where it was the most sophisticated justice system and even that justice system failed an innocent man and brutally executed him and although I personally didn't drive the nails into Jesus' arms I have to sat, stand at the foot of the cross and realise that my sin the sin in my life and the destruction that I unleashed on this world is responsible for the fact that it required the sacrifice of an innocent man. And we should come to the foot of the cross and look at Jesus and confess and know that we are stood in front of a righteous God who will do the right thing by you by sending his son to make a way for your freedom for your restoration because right back at Genesis God said that through Abraham he will make a way to bless all peoples on all the earth of all nations and read Daniel and figure out as many timelines as you want but it can be no summed up better than through the cross of Jesus Christ. Daniel understood that in God's righteousness, he's judge. But he also understood that because of God's righteousness, he would show mercy. And when we stand before the cross, And confess, we've not kept up our end of the bargain. This is about me, it's not about other people. But Father, you are righteous. Because of your righteousness, you have made a way. Because you said at the beginning of time that you will make a way. And that is found at the foot of the cross. The right and correct response 
in Daniel, in Paul. And so should two be found in us when you understand what it means for God to be righteous and for him to make us righteous through his son. It's humility. Humility. Not the righteous martyr that thinks I'm doing it right and it's everybody else. No. As soon as you begin to point the finger, the best thing you can do is just bend it right round and point it back at yourself. So this is about you. It's not about others. It's about we. It's about I. The correct response is humility. And I would encourage you, maybe you haven't confessed in a while. Maybe it's right for you this morning just to close your eyes, stand before the cross and go, Lord, I am responsible. I have sinned. I have unleashed bad things into this world. I have, I have not been righteous because I have not always done the right thing. I've not done right by others, not done right by you, God. But you are righteous. You did right by me. And through Jesus Christ, you have found a way for me, for restoration, for blessing, for healing, for joy, for peace, for hope, for hope. That is understanding what righteousness means. Lord, I pray and thank you that you are righteous, that you have always done the right thing by us. And that although, yes, there is a consequence to evil, you made a way to find us innocent. 